We're going to read Psalm 105 together. We're going to read all of it. Um, this is a, a practice for us that is, that is common, and, and as we make our way to Psalm 105, I want to maybe give you a recap for, for where we want to go. My hope is, as you make your way to Psalm 105, that we, as a group of people, you heard me say this, I'm going to keep saying this, the song of the summer for us, hopefully, is not something by Drake, Justin Timberlake, Nicki Minaj, Rihanna, whoever else is making cool songs right now. Don't recommend or Google any of those people at the moment. But, but here, here you go. Our hope is that the song of the summer for us, the thing that, that kind of resonates in us deeply, the thing that kind of sticks in your head, is something more substantive than just a catchy tune. But instead, the Psalms, the prayer book, the songbook of the Bible might begin to kind of infiltrate your mind and imagination such that it becomes the thing that you wake up humming in your head. The words and this good news of who God is, His character, begins to give you the language of faith. For us, this means two different things, I hope, this summer, is that as we read the Psalms, we begin to love the Bible more and become less afraid of it. The Psalms are a very accessible entrance into the Bible. Typically, you can open the Bible and there's a steep learning curve and you're, you're not sure where you are or what, what story you're hearing, but the Psalms are, are in our own language. They're in pretty organic words to describe the people's experience of God's sovereignty. So they're songs of, of joy. They're songs of lament. And this is something that, we, that kind of hurts us, but they're very common in the Psalms. There's, there's songs of mourning and lamentation. We're not afraid to cry out to God and look to Him. There's songs of, of rejoicing. There's songs that, that call us to dance. Some that call us, as we read just a few moments ago, songs that call us to sing. But ultimately, as we dissect these things, they call us to remember and think poetically, creatively about who God is. So we're going to read in Psalm 105 a psalm that is much more didactic. It will teach us not just about who God is, but it will teach us a little bit of how we even begin to read the Bible. So let's read together, beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Tell of all His wondrous works. Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in His, in his strength. Seek His presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that He has done. His miracles and the judgments He uttered. O offspring of Abraham, His servant, children of Jacob, His chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers His covenant forever. The word that He commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that He made with Abraham. His sworn promise to Isaac, which He confirmed to Jacob as a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When they were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, Wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave 
His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him, that is, he the Lord, made Joseph Lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. But he sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke, and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the firstfruits of all their strength. Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering and a fire to give light by night. They asked, and he brought quail. He gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. For he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. So he brought his people out with joy. His chosen ones with singing. And he gave them the lands of the nations and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I think what we see here, I think what you'll find, as with most of the times that we are in the Old Testament, is the gospel in seed form. That is the good news of who God is and what He has done for us in Jesus that is full and fruitful and abundantly and miraculously and exponentially growing from the beginning of the New Testament up to the point where you and I are sitting here in an elementary school thousands of years, thousands of miles away celebrating who Jesus is. Found in seed form in the Old Testament. The greatness and fullness of God for us in Jesus can be seed in seed form here. The beginnings of it. You can see the shadows of it. You can begin to see the image of God redeeming us in Jesus, even in this. And so I want you to see this. I want you to understand this. I want this to begin to give you joy. I want you to see that what begins as an exhortation to praise God, that ends with a declaration to praise God, ends in 
in our obedience, and I want you to see this for yourself. I want you to be encouraged by it because those who know the character of God will remember and thank Him forever for who He is and what He has done. Those who begin to know the character of God, who He is, His nature, His infinite qualities, the things that He will continue to be beginning at the beginning and all the way to the end. He will continue to be eternally past, eternally future, forever and ever. This is who He is. And when we begin to have our eyes open to who God is in this, we begin to realize something about Him. We begin to celebrate Him differently. We begin to remember things about Him on a regular basis. And we begin to thank Him forever. And praise Him and glorify Him forever for who He is and what He's done. So this psalm is a recount of the story from Genesis to about Deuteronomy. Remember what I told you? There's five essential books of the Psalms. They're separated kind of in five sections. Well, this is the very last Psalm in the fourth, fourth section. And you can kind of break them out into a way in which each of those is not just a kind of a, a, a Psalm or a meditation or a prayer or a poem, but they're kind of a, a rumination on each of the five books of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, we would call them Genesis, Exodus, Le Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in a sense, the five books of the Psalms begin to kind of meditate on each of these things and begin to teach us how to read them. But every once in a while, like here, it's not just a meditation on one particular book in the Pentateuch, one of the first five books of the Bible, but this is a meditation on the whole of the Pentateuch. It's a summary. Here's, here's where I would put This is, in this psalm, the cliff's, note, the cliff's notes for the Pentateuch. Right? This is the Wikipedia page of the Pentateuch. All right? Now, now as with every Wikipedia page, all right, you don't want to trust it instead of the actual source. But it can begin to summarize and give you a big picture of what it's meditating on. And so Psalm 105 is a meditation from Genesis, specifically Genesis 12, where God meets Abram, promises something to him, and starts a covenant with him, an agreement that he keeps up to the point where the promise to give Abraham a new nation, a new people, is fulfilled when they enter the promised land, Canaan, cross the Jordan at the end of Deuteronomy. So in a sense, if you find yourself stuck in reading the Bible, this is the beautiful thing that the Bible gives to us. It gives us little glimpses of how we should read it and how we should understand it. So make a note of this. If you find yourself stuck in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy, stop, zoom out, open up Psalm 105, and begin to see the big picture. Now this isn't uncommon. If you look at Psalm 78, I encourage you, if you're a note taker, make a note of Psalm 78, because a similar thing takes place there. Except that while this psalm, in meditating on and ruminating on what God has done for them, calls us to praise. Psalm 78 is a meditation and, and kind of a cliff's notes of the Pentateuch that calls us to repent, calls us to confess our sinfulness. But you'll notice, if you're, if you're familiar with the story of the first five books of the Bible, it skips over some pretty awful stuff here, doesn't it? It kind of skips over some of the awful things people have done, and it only tells the story, again, this is Wikipedia style, this is Cliff's Note style. It kind of only tells the story with the highlights that it means to communicate, namely who God is and what he's done. So there isn't, like the other Psalms we've seen for the last few weeks, a, a great detail about the sinfulness of people, but instead about the redemptive and loving hand of God in spite of them, all throughout 105. So what begins the Psalm here is kind of this exhortation to praise God. 
The beginning here is an invitation, and the end is a, declare, a, a declaration for us to praise, praise God. Did you get that first verse? Last verse. Praise God. Oh, give thanks to the Lord and call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. So it begins in an exhortation to praise God, and then it addresses a specific kind of exhortation to people who call themselves chosen by God. The writer of Psalm 105 isn't just saying that everybody should praise God, even though it says that all the nations should. But Psalm 105 is specifically to people who have a particular reason to praise God. They're chosen by Him. And the way that it unpacks what it looks like to be chosen and owned and under the lordship and possession of God from verse 7 on is a telling of all the things He's done for us. There's a summary of the history of God's people. There's a summary from Abraham all the way to the wandering disobediently through the desert, through the, through the wilderness, in Numbers and Deuteronomy, and then a glimpse of entrance into the promised land. And all of this is to remind us that their ultimate goal in seeing God for who He is, seeing His gracious dealings with people, is obedience. So just see the trajectory. Before we begin to kind of dissect this, it begins by saying, praise the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. And then it goes, look, look, look what God has done for us. He's chosen us. He's adopted us. He's in a covenant with us. He's not in a contract such that when you break it, he abandons you, but he's in a covenant that he will remember forever. We're his offspring. And, and then there's this list of all the things that God has done. But then it ends at the very end. If you look at verse 45 with me, it says that. That verse Five, 45 begins with a word that's really important, that. It's really a so that or in order that. So we praise God. We see that all that he's done, why? Why should we think about what he's done? So that in verse 45, that we might keep his statutes. We would observe his laws and praise the Lord. The end result of seeing who God is is a response in who we are and what we do. So let me put it this way. We, we, we were saying that if you meditate on who God is, you begin to recount his deeds, you begin to recite them, and you begin to thank him and love him forever. And here's the way I would say this. We talked about this when we were digging through the chunks of the, Old, the New Testament and our identity is found in Christ, and this you'll see every single time, that when you know who God is and you know who you are in light of him, then you know what to do. When you know who God is, you know who he's created you to be, then you know what to do. When you know who you are in light of who God is, then, and only then, you know what to do. This is key for us. Let me just start with that summary as a very countercultural claim for us. Because we, in a kind of our own, our own ideals of autonomy, self-will, and self-governance, usually start with what we ought to do first. And think about who we are second. In fact, right now, some of you, and this, this, is, this is the hard part for you. Some of you right now, you're wishing that I could just boil all this down and just tell you to do some stuff. You wish I would just give you a list. Some of you have been, been taught that by our culture, by our society. Some of you, I'm afraid, have been taught that by, by the church. And right now, you're just like, just, just tell me what to do, Jonathan. Tell me what I should do. And here's the awesome thing for us. That only comes after we've thought about what God has done. 
We get the indicatives before the imperatives. That is, we get the declarative statements about God before we get the things that we ought to do. Because unless you understand who God is and what He's done, then you won't know what to do. And we get to begin with what God has finished for us. Here's how this undermines our joy in Christ and begins to destroy the church from within. We make it about us and what we ought to do, such that we think that who we ought to be is out there on the horizon. You felt this way? You hear about Jesus and your response is, I'm going to do better this week. I'm going to do so much better. I'm going to stop doing that thing that I always do and I'm going to start doing the thing that I wish I have always wanted to do. You've been there? And we skip right past what Jesus has done. And if we're not careful, we'll lose our joy in the gospel because we'll be so focused on who we are and what we ought to do to the expense of knowing who God is and what he has done. Don't miss this. We begin by thanking the Lord for what he has done. Do you see, do you see the seeds of the gospel here? Do you see the seeds of the gospel that, that come to full fruition in Jesus? The seed planted here, we think about what God has done before we think about what we ought to do. The seeds here come to fruitfulness in Jesus, to where one of Jesus' last words wasn't, you guys better get it done. You guys better get to work. He doesn't say, you owe me big time. One of the last words of Jesus was what? It is finished. He uses an, eco an economic term, an accounting term. It is paid in full. So yes, at the very end, we land on what we ought to do, but don't miss. We start with what God has done. For some of you, that may just be the good news you need to hear. You're living in shame and guilt because you keep failing. Let me give you a pep talk here, all right? You will continue to fail. But God will not you will not keep your end of the covenant. But did you catch that? He, verse 8, remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded, the one that you keep missing, he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac. He keeps it. He confirms it. Just rest for a minute. Put your faith in him. Put your faith in what he has done. Remove your faith in what you do. Because when you know who he is, and you know who you are in light of him, then you know what to do. Remember this. Because he begins to recount for us all of these things. There's like a, there's like a, a massive sprint through the entirety of the Old Testament. Beginning in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 starts with a man named Abram. God promises to bless, not for his own sake, but to bless the nations. And in the way that God is going to bless Abraham, all of the nations of the world will rise and bless the Lord and call Abraham blessed. He gives him a blessing that will overflow to the point that everyone will praise God for him. So this is what happens. This is a regularity for us. On a regular basis, we tell a greater story. We rehearse it. Over and over and over so you know that temptation, right? You just tell me what to do, Jonathan. Tell me what to do, John. Here, here's what I bet I know about you. I bet next week you'll sit right here again and you'll wish I would do it again. 
And I'll have to go, no, 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 no. Steal God. Steal Him. Steal His glory. Steal His mercy. Not you, Him. And so this story, we have to retell. We have to retell it. This is what I think is interesting. There's so many different uh, repetitions in the Old Testament that kind of bog us down if we're reading them. Right? The Lord, I'm the Lord your God. I brought you out of the hand of Egypt. I'm the Lord. I've, I've done this. I've, there's these repetitions. And, and here's what I find interesting. You see it in the New Testament as well. In the New Testament, we find that most of, our, most of the things that we get, we get in Christ. So much so that over 200 times, we find that the blessings come to us in Christ. That phrase, in Christ, or through, through Christ, shows up over 200 times. This kind of repetition of this story happens over and over and over again. Over and over and over again. Now, here's what I would guess. Like, if someone tells you something 200 times, there's two things, okay? First of all, they think it's important, right? And second of all, and this is especially important for us, they think you're going to forget it. If you tell someone something 200 times, there's kind of this condescending thing going on. Have you felt this? This happens to me all the time. Don't forget. Don't forget. Don't, I, I, I know. Well, if you don't do it, I got it. Multiply that times 200, and you see the New Testament phrase of in Christ. Now multiply this times about 70 to 90 times, depending how you define it, and this rehearsal of God's story keeps coming at us. Why? Because we are extremely likely to forget it. And what I tell you about God and his love and his mercy and sovereignty over your life, I promise you, the minute you begin to walk out of this building, you will start to forget. It will start to slip your mind. And you will want to replace it with the story, the narrative that our culture, that the brokenness of our own sinful world wants you to remember. So we rehearse it. We tell this story. We see this bigger story as the point of the Bible. We ultimately think that the Bible is not about you. We think it's about God. And we actually begin to understand our smaller story when we begin to understand how great his story is. And we begin to understand that since his story is so great, it's a very gracious and awesome thing that he would invite us into it. Like, why would he even care about our story unless he was incredibly gracious, incredibly merciful? So we retell the story. We regularly get together when we can and we say the words right out of this psalm, right? Remember the wondrous works that he has done. Verse 5, his miracles and his judgments that he's uttered. Man, I don't know about you, this is what I need from you. This is what I need from you. When I come to you and I say, hey, here's the obstacle. Here's the thing coming up. I'm really stressed about it. I'm really broken by this and I don't know what to do. Here's what I need you to do. Don't skip to verse 45 and say, Jonathan, you better obey his commandments. You better observe his laws. There's a time and place for that. And I'll deserve that. But don't start there, please. Start in verse 5 and say, Jonathan, remember what God has done for you. Remember who he is. Remember what he has finished and accomplished for you in Jesus. Remember. Do you hear the echoes of the gospel? Remember that you were dead in your trespasses. And Jesus says, I'm going to be dead right next to you so that I can draw you up in a new life. Remember that while you were the enemy, God didn't send his son to defeat you and to destroy you. He sent you the enemy. He sent, God, he sent his son to you, the enemy, to redeem you and make you his friend. While you were yet 
far off, the parable of the lost son tells us. The father runs and tackles the son to restore him back to family, right? While you were yet the enemy, while you were a long way off, some of you who are far have now been drawn near, drawn near, Ephesians tells us. You once were aliens, but you were refugees and homeless, and now you are adopted sons and daughters of God. Start there. Let us start there. Let it be that that is the first thing that comes out of our mouth. We say, look, look at what God has done offspring of Abraham. You're chosen. Why are you chosen? Because you're special? No, but because God is merciful. He's confirmed it, verse 10. He's confirmed it in the lineage that he gave, all the way up to the point where that he remembers his holy promise in verse 42. He protected the people while they were sojourners, while they were making their way to receive his inheritance. He protected them. He guided them. He directed them. Even though awful things happen, I don't know if you caught some of that, verse 16, there was things around them. The land in which they lived had a famine that God placed on it. But verse 17 tells the picture that we're meant to remind ourselves of. It says that he sent someone ahead of them. So let's just dig. We can't open up maybe every single one of these stories, but over the life of our church, I think we probably will begin to unpack these stories. But one of our favorites, my personal favorite, is the story of a man by the name of Joseph. Joseph, his story shows up in the latter chunk of Genesis. It takes up a great deal of, of, of the last parts of Genesis. And there's a man by the name of Joseph, and, and he's kind of a punk. All right? he's, he's a fairly cocky young man, and he has a dream that God gives him uh, in which all of his brothers that he begins to interpret will bow down and worship him. Now, this is just me talking, but if you have a dream in which all of your friends worship you, like all of your family worships you, you're going to want to think a little bit more carefully about how you tell them that. Like, reword it. Joseph doesn't, because he's a cocky punk and he doesn't know. He's, he's one of the youngest of the brothers. And he's like, hey, bros, all of you big brothers. I mean, everyone, I mean, I'm a little brother. I, I understand what I look like. I get it, right? But when the little brother goes up to the, all the other big bros, and, hey, big brothers, one day, you're all going to worship me. You're welcome. <laughs> what do the boys do? They get together and they go, let's kill this guy. They take him. And one of, the, one of the brothers, one of, he, he has a striking, like, all of a sudden, like a recurrence of his conscience. And he goes, wait, God, I don't think we should kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. <laughs> so they soak his coat with blood, take it to their father, and go, look, here's the bloody, uh, here's the bloody um, coat of your favorite son. Uh, something awful happened to him. We, we, we weren't there. We're sorry. Here's the, here he, something bad happened to him. And he mourns, which had to have made it even worse, but but they, they kind of took solace in the fact that they threw him in a pit and someone came along and they sold him into slavery, all right? The worst of the worst, right? This is the worst thing that could have happened. So as he's sold into slavery, God begins to bless him and God begins to use him. He doesn't respond simply to his circumstances by mourning and, and feeling awful. I don't know what you would do, but then he begins to bless people and there's all these weird things. God, God uses them to interpret dreams. God uses them to, to, be, uh, to be elevated in the house of, of the enemy, the, the foreigner, the pagans, a man by the name of Potiphar, and to the point where, he, again, he's a cocky punk, all right? And so he gets in this weird situation where Potiphar, the, his master's wife, makes an advance at him. And my personal response to that would be like, what were you doing in the house alone with Potiphar's wife. This is just my own observation. Again, he's, kind of, he's kind, of, kind of oblivious to this, right? He's like, I'm invincible. I think nothing can hurt me. So then in the midst of this, Potiphar, his master, throws him into prison, leaves him there to rot, to die. But along comes a couple of people who were actually put in prison by the king, by Pharaoh. He interprets some dreams, blesses them, 
Leaves them there to rot a little bit longer until Pharaoh asks about a dream and somebody who happened to be a cupbearer and servant to, the, to Pharaoh remembers, I remember, that. I remember when I was rotting in prison, there was this guy who interpreted our dreams. Pharaoh summons him. God uses Joseph to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh, blesses him. And then it says that Pharaoh puts Joseph in second in command over all of his kingdom. And he predicts a famine. A famine in which thousands and thousands of people are killed. Thousands of them. And in those thousands of people that are starving in the famine, do you know who's there? His father and his older brothers. They walk into the pagan land for food. Food, mind you, which had been stored up because God revealed to Joseph in a dream that a famine was coming, such that he encouraged the king of the land, the pagan, to begin to store up the kinds of things that they would need to survive the famine. Along comes Joseph's family, and Joseph sees them, and they don't recognize him because they assume that brother is long and dead. And what does Joseph do? And instead of exacting revenge, we sang it just a minute. I don't know if you caught this. This is something we sing about. The bridge of the second we song, Sovereign Over Us. Did you catch that? Even what the enemy means for evil, God turns for our good. Where does he get that? Where does that phrase in that song come from? It comes from a story out of the end of Genesis where when Joseph had the ability to kill and exact revenge on his brothers for throwing him into the pit, throwing him and selling him into slavery, sending him into the worst trajectory he could imagine, what does he say? What you meant for evil, God meant for good and for the saving of many people. Did you catch that? A famine comes. A famine comes. But what does it say that God has done? What does it say that God is doing? In verse 16, he summoned a famine in the land and broke all supply of bread. But what? He had sent a man. That's in past tense. Did you get to that? The famine was coming, but God had already sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Wait a minute. I thought you told me that the brothers wanted to kill him, and that was how he got sold into slavery. I thought you told me that the circumstances were of his own failure and the failures of others. No, it turns turns out that, in fact, God is doing something, and the story of Joseph that would be a tragedy all of a sudden starts to make sense in the story of God's redeeming love. And what seems like a dark and awful story about a man thrown into slavery becomes a story about how God takes the oppression of others to save his people. You get it? You get it? That's Jesus. The seeds are being planted here that in the overarching story of God's love for us, we begin to understand awful stories in light of it. It says that awful things began to happen. He sent Moses, his servants, to deliver his people. He sends plagues. He begins to control them. This is the story we're meant to remember. This is the story you and I are meant to rehearse. This is the thing that when our life falls apart on some idle Tuesday and you get that phone call that throws everything upside down, this is the story that you and I are meant to rehearse. This is the story that you and I are meant to repeat. We do it over and over and over again. We sing about it. We pray about it. I get up here every week and I I get to tell you more about it. We gather together and we hopefully let that be the banner over our fellowship. And here's what I think we can see in that rehearsal. 
Have you ever noticed that the most important things in life, the most healthy things, are the things that you have to do every day? The most important things are the things that you can't skip. You can't go a day without. Every day. Every day we have to sleep. Try not to. Good luck. See some of you right now. I'm not going to look at you. It's okay. I love you. I love you. It's all right. Proves the point. You need more sleep. So I'm, I'm the same way. I'm drifting off. I'm, I'm running on empty. We have to sleep. We have to eat. We have to drink. Every day. Every day. And when we forget that we have to do it every day, there are built-in reminders for, this, for us, aren't there? It's almost like God wired us that way. It's almost like God designed us that way. It's almost like God the Creator meant for us the created to live that way, to constantly be in need, to constantly be dependent. See, I don't know about you, but I don't like being created this way. I'd rather be the creator. I just want to do it. I want to put it there, and it stays there, right? I want to fix it, and it stays fixed. I want to be the creator. I want to be the one that, like, this is the last time I have to do this. This is the last one of these I'll have to buy. When I buy this one, I'll never have to buy another one because it will never break. That's what I want. I want this. This is why you'll hear me complain on a regular, ba regular basis. This is why we can't have nice things because everything breaks. And I wish I could be the creator that just like sets it in motion and then, okay, good. I get terribly annoyed when people tell me, oh, that didn't work. Ugh. I want to be the creator. But it's possible if we see this rightly that the most important things in our lives are the things that we have to do on a regular basis. Even remind ourselves who God is. Even remind ourselves that we are created this way. We are created to need and to want and to desire this good news. So here's the things I think we can observe on the way out of this particular text. First one, I think we see this. God grants the knowledge of his nature through his name. Did you catch that? It starts with glory, verse 3, in his holy name. That's a weird way to use that word. We wouldn't usually use it that way. But it simply means to exalt or to boast in. We boast in his name. In fact, this is a derivative of the word elsewhere found, hallelujah. Halal, to praise or to exalt. Yah, that is Yahweh, praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord, praise you the Lord, is the word hallelujah. And this is a derivative of that name. Praise or glory or exalt. Boast in is my favorite. Like, make much of. We boast in the name of the Lord. We call upon His name, but ultimately we boast in Him. We are boastful about who God is. The world glories in many other things. It boasts in other things, and it wants you to glory in them too. But those things, apparently, according to God, will eventually be dust, and our hope will be in his name. It will be his name that is ineffable and lasting forever. It's his power and his love demonstrated through his name that we can trust. So we glory in his name. And God grants us the knowledge and understanding of his nature. Remember, when we know who he is, we know who we are and what we ought to do. And the way we know who he is is by understanding who he is in his name. The next thing I think you'll see is that we boast in the holy name of God. We meditate upon it in his, and his wondrous works, excuse me. We inquire after him before all else, and we seek him above all else. 
Did you see how small the people in this story became? They really start to sound like chess pieces in this story, don't they? It's almost like they have no agency. That's why I told you that story about Joseph. It seems like Joseph and his brothers are playing some big roles. It seems like the Pharaoh, the, the king of Egypt, is playing an important role. But according to this story, according to the Cliff's notes of the entirety of the book of Genesis, we come to find out that it's actually God who does it. God's the one at work. God's the one who sends people in and out. God summons the famine, and God summons the salvation from the famine. God does it all. It looks like people are really destroying it. It looks like people are, are messing it up. And what is God doing? He's bringing it about for his good and for, for, for your good and his glory. This, I, I'm going to say this every time I get a chance. This is why we call the worst possible day on earth. The day that Jesus, the innocent, spotless, and righteous son of God, the miracle worker, the teacher, the savior of the universe, was abandoned, betrayed, and hung on a cross. And do you know what we call that day? This is, this is morose. This is radical. We call that day that the perfect spotless son of God died. Good Friday. It's a good day. That was a good day. I don't know what you call a good day, but we look at it and we say that's a good day. The worst day we say is the good day. Why? Because ultimately the story is about him. The kingdom is his. That's why we seek first his kingdom. We seek his righteousness. We seek his deeds, his works. We glorify his name. And all the rest of this is added to us. We seek him for who he is and what he's done. Then we know what to do next. So we boast in. This is the church, right? We're the people that boast in the name of God. We have a funny way of Jesus juking everything because everything, as we see it, fits into the larger story of Jesus. So everything for us is about the name of Jesus. We always meditate upon his works because we see the seeds of the gospel everywhere. We always inquire to him first, asking him his will before ours, and then we seek his name, his will, his kingdom above everything else. Lastly, we find out that the preservation of God's people, the, not only preservation, but the establishment and preservation of God's people in the world is the cause, the work, and the glory of God. Every single one of these stories that plays out in Psalm 105 has this kind of weird sense in which something bad's going to happen. Ever feel that way? Do you feel, again, you feel your createdness? Like, I want to I put it there and I want it to stay, but it falls apart because you were created? So much so that we begin to expect bad things, Right? Have you ever heard this one? Bad things come in, you're wrong, not threes. Did you read this list? It comes in tens. It's worse. Did you catch these plagues? There's 10 of them. So you're right. You suspect rightly. In this world, bad things tend to happen together. They tend to happen in bunches. They tend to happen all the time. Here, here's a possibility. In the same way that those plagues were sent to the Egyptians to undermine their loyalty to their gods, to undermine their worship of their idols, so also God can use the awful and terrible things, whether they come in threes or tens, to undermine your idols and mine, the things that presently take the place of God. Because God ultimately wants to be glorified by drawing you into his story, even if that means ruining the story that you want to tell. Even if that means destroying the story that you wish would happen, he'll do it anyway. God does this. God is the one who accomplishes this. God is the one who perfects this. And when you know who God is, you know who you are. 
and then you know what to do. So some of you are asking right now, I'm going to walk over here, I forgot my props. Some of you are asking, what do I do now? Where do I go from here? I just picked two random objects this morning, uh, the first things I thought of, and I just kind of want to show them. They're like, I have here a water bottle, and I have a hammer, okay? I made neither of these, so part of this analogy falls apart, but like, if I tried the best I could, can I make this one, this hammer, do all the stuff that this water bottle does? Can I make this water bottle do all this stuff that the hammer does? I think I picked the hammer because I remember in, in, in a, I don't know if you had a good shop class when you were in high school, my shop class had little signs on all the tools everywhere, like taped everywhere, it said, this is not a hammer. Because you're tending, I don't know if you, you work on something, you're like, I got to beat that in. I'll just, and you, you break tools that way, right? Because this is not a hammer. And how much frustration will I gain by trying to make this one do the job of this one? By trying to drink out of a hammer or drive nails with a water bottle? Seems silly, doesn't it? Friend, that simple fact is the thing that ought to resonate in us deeply when we reflect on who God is. Because when we know who God is, we begin to know who we are. Chosen, adopted, redeemed, held fast by a covenant that God will never forget. Remembered forever and ever. And when we know that about God and about us, then we know what to do. Then we know what to do. And if right now you find yourself in a spot where you don't know what comes next, I know many of you are in a transition, like, what, what step do I take? What, what decision do I make next? You wonder, what do I do? And right now you wish I would get to the part of the sermon where I tell you what to do. Here's where I get to tell you when you see God for who he is and see yourself in light of that, then you know what to do. You live for his glory. You live for his namesake. You see your story is just one miraculous, gracious story that fits into the overarching, redeeming story that God is telling through Jesus and you. And when you know that, you know what to do. Let's pray together. God, we want to know, uh, we want to see rightly who you are. We want to see you for how gracious you truly have been to us. But we have to confess that more often than not, we don't know where to turn. More often than not, we would, we would rather take that story of us and our own dreamed happy ending, and we want to make that the greatest story. God, I sympathize with Joseph. I just I want to make my story about how I'm a victim, how I, I deserve more pity and empathy than anyone else. It's all about me. No one's been mistreated like I have. And God, if there's some in this room that maybe that's their story, they, they find themselves repeating that over and over and over again. No one has it as bad as me. No one knows what this is like. Would you begin to undermine and begin to destroy and uproot that story such that we begin to rehearse a greater story? No one has known greater sorrow than Jesus and the sorrow that he has endured for us is so that we would endure nothing but joy forever. God, forgive me for the times where I try to make my story 
the central story. If there's some in this room, maybe they wouldn't call themselves believers in Jesus. Maybe this is the, the first time they've ever contemplated that this story of the Bible has anything to do with them. God, would you begin to open their eyes to the possibility that you're doing something bigger? God, begin, begin to astound them and us with the possibility that may, you might have even brought them into this building so that today they would have their eyes opened to how their story fits into yours. You would do that. You would do that. You're the kind of God that would, that would orchestrate the, the circumstances. You're the kind of God that would work the pieces together such that we would be in this room rehearsing and retelling the story of your love so that someone who didn't know it would believe it and be transformed by it. If that person hears that today, would they respond in faith? Would they respond by turning away from their story, turning away from themselves, and seeing you as majestic and Lord over all things? For those of us who just have a tendency to make everything about us, God, forgive us, please. We, 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 want, we want attention. We want prosperity. Um, we avoid suffering for our own sake. We, we rarely see the opportunities around us, the circumstances around us as, as means by which you're doing something majestic. We, we don't see that. Open our eyes to this. Let us to tr- allow us to trust this more than anything else. Allow us to rehearse this over and over and over again. Around, allow this to be the, the bread that we eat, the water we drink, the sleep and rest that we need, the life and breath that you fill our lungs with. Be, be steadfast in your love for us to restore us on a regular basis with this good news. When we begin to forget it, restore us and remind us of your covenant that we might rehearse it forever and ever. We love you for this, and in Jesus' name we ask all of these things. Amen.